Thank you, Doug. Thank you so much. Welcome, church family, and welcome all our guests and those that are joining us online this morning. Have, have your Bibles. You've opened them, I hope, to Ephesians chapter 5. If you would now also turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And I hope that won't be a hard passage for you to find. Genesis chapter 2. Weddings are wonderful. They really are. Weddings are wonderful. I really enjoy and I really enjoy participating in weddings and also attending them. There's something special about sharing the joy of two people who are being married. And it's a special joy to enter in with the joy of two families that are being united as well. How many of you know when two people get married, two families sort of get married as well? Usually that's a good thing. <laughs> Sometimes. Last two weekends, I've been blessed, Susan as well, to participate in weddings. Last week, I was in Dalton, Georgia, and entered into the joy of the Folden family, the Jones family, as Sally and Douglas uh, were married, and I was privileged to participate in that. This is the second of the Folden daughters that I've performed their wedding in Dalton, Georgia. They've all, those two have stayed at the church there. And on the platform, I told the pastor to knock it off, okay? <laughs> he, he's taking these daughters away from us. It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful service. Yesterday, Susan and I were blessed as we attended the family uh, celebration by the Arwoods and by the Darlingtons as Anna and Joshua were married. It was, again, just a great Great privilege to participate. And really, I enjoy performing weddings. And that's a good thing because I've performed 250 to 300 of them over these many, many years. I enjoy preparing couples, not just for the wedding, but for the marriage that follows the wedding. And I suppose over the last 43 years that I've been in ministry, I've probably spent three to 4,000 hours doing that. I've also done a lot of marital counseling, thousands of hours. Don't enjoy that so much. I enjoy preaching on, mess on marriage, and I'm going to do that today. And I must say that I honestly feel that I am pretty prepared for this message. It's been in the making for 45 years, two months, and 11 days. <laughs> but I also feel a little pressure this morning because I'm preaching on marriage in front of my wife. <laughs> So remember that. If I make you feel, feel a little uncomfortable this morning, put yourself in my shoes. <laughs> now, I don't want you to check out. I know that many here this morning, many that are listening and will listen, watch this message, are unmarried. Some have lost dear husband, dear wife. I always think, though, you're still married in some sense in your heart, right? Some formerly married ended in heartache of divorce. 
some who want to be married, some who don't ever want to be married. I want to encourage you, don't check out. Why? Because this is a gospel message. This is a gospel message. You see, we're in a series. We began last week here at West Park, Faith and Family, the Gospel on Display. And that is absolutely true of marriage. Marriage is, for followers of Jesus, incredible mission of putting the gospel on display. And so today, I want us to think about that. I want us to consider this subject this morning for our series. I entitle this message, A Gospel-Guided Marriage. A Gospel-Guided Marriage. And as Don prayed this morning, I joined in prayer that I might have the ability to speak his word to you and to my own heart and also pray for you to listen and for me to also listen to the word of the Lord. Gospel-guided marriage. So let's begin at the beginning. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And what I want you to notice first is the gospel intent of marriage. The gospel intent of marriage. Marriage is a good thing. (laughs) Marriage is good because marriage is of God. Marriage is not, never was, man's idea. Marriage comes from the mind of God, the heart of our Heavenly Father. And in the Garden of Eden, we see this good intent for marriage. We see God's good purpose revealed. Notice here, God's good purpose is revealed. Now notice something. When God created the heavens, the earth, all things, what did he say? It is good. It is good. It is good. And when he completed his creation, he said what? Behold, it is very good. But now notice in verse 18 of chapter 2 is the first thing God says is not good. He says this, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Marriage, then, was God's plan to address something that was not good. Literally, the text reads from Hebrew this way. And behold, the Lord said, this aloneness is not good. What God said was not good is aloneness. Why? Because we were created in the image of God. We were created for community. Our God is a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were created for community. Whether you are married or not or ever will be married, you were still created for community. Aloneness is not good. But the incredible way that God addressed this aloneness that is not good was to give an answer. And the answer is an azare. (laughs) Azare. That's the word used for the woman. Verse 18. God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him an azare. A helper, as it's translated in the English Standard Version, 
a helper fit for him. The word azer, helper, means a friend, an advocate, a, a companion. To show you how powerful this word is, the Lord uses the word azer for himself. That he is God our azer. He is the helper of his people. He is the companion, the advocate for his people. So when God created the woman, he created for the man someone who was not just to help him out, but someone who would be his companion, his colleague, his advocate. It's mutual. But now notice, God caused Adam to feel his aloneness. Listen to this. He caused him to feel his aloneness. How did he do that? Look at verses 19 and 20. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every kind of bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found an azer, a companion for him. You see what God's doing? He's bringing the animal that he has created before Adam. He sees that all of them have counterparts. They all have companions, but he is alone. He's creating, stirring up in Adam a desire for companionship. And God provided a companion for Adam, and he did it in the most personal, powerful, wonderful way. When you think of all the ways that God could have created a companion, counterfeit, fit, uh, counterfeit, com <laughs> not, not quite right there. Pray for me, would you? All right. Susan, I'm sorry about that, okay? That had nothing to do with us, okay? <laughs> Advocate, how about we go with that? And I will expect that to be removed from all recordings of this sermon. <laughs> Don't try this at home. I'm a trained professional. Remember that. <laughs> How did he do it? God could have done it in so many ways. Here's how he did it. Verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh in the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. What a scene! But I want to ask you, do you see the gospel in this scene? Do you see it? God wounded the side of his son, Adam. Out of his side took the substance to form a bride for his son, Adam. Do you see the gospel? Amen. Out of the wounded side of the second Adam, his son, Jesus Christ, the water and the blood came to form his people. Amen. 
his followers who would become the church and the church would be his bride. What a God we serve. Jesus is on every page of this book. But also listening to this covenant language. After the Lord had done this, then listen, if you would, verses 24 and 25. It's not just, hey, here, she's for you. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. God is speaking to Adam and Eve, of course, though, but he's looking into the future. Therefore, man leaves his father and mother. He holds fast. He bonds with his wife. They become one. And the man and his wife were both naked. They were not ashamed. There was complete oneness, openness. No hiding. God's good purpose is revealed in marriage. But I want you to sadly see this. God's good purpose is ruined. And it's ruined in the midst of that first marriage. You know what happened? Adam and Eve listen. To the voice of the enemy, listen to the advice of the serpent rather than listening to the commands of their ever-loving Heavenly Father. It wasn't Eve alone doing this. The text of the Hebrew is very clear. Eve took the fruit but gave it to her husband also. And it means she, he was right there. Right there. And what happened with their sin, disobedience to God, they brought a curse, a curse into the creation over which they were stewards, a curse into their own lives. Paradise was lost, ruined. Chapter 3. Verse 16, God speaks the words of a curse. It's not God cursing them, causing this. This is God saying, this is what has happened because of your sin. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. You shall bring forth your children in pain. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What is, what's the Lord saying? These are words of selfishness. This is what your selfishness has brought. Pain. This is what your selfishness has brought to your lives and to this union that I formed he said, your desire, because of this, Eve, your desire will be for your husband. And the word desire here is not romantic desire. The word here is teshuka. Teshuka. And it means you will desire to control your husband. That's what the word means. To desire to control your husband. And his desire shall be to rule, mashal, mashal, his desire will be to dominate you. This is what you've brought to this wonderful marriage because you are now sinners. Even in your marriage, you will seek to dominate and control each other. God's good purpose for marriage was ruined. Marriage is marred by sinful selfishness. As wonderful as marriage is, you've got to always remember this. 
your spouse is a sinner. And secondly, you're not so hot yourself. (laughs) Start there. We're sinners. However, where sin has abounded, what are we told? Grace superabounds. And so we see here there's hope for ruined marriages. There's hope. It's gospel hope. And that's God's good purpose in redemption. God's good purpose in redemption. Look at verse 15. The first clear mention of the gospel. God is bringing forth the curses. Saying this is what has happened. He says yes your marriage has a curse on it. But he also makes a promise. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you. Speaking to the serpent. We know who the serpent really is, right? Satan, the serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring, her offspring, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. What is this? The first mention of the gospel. The proto-evangelium, as the theologians call it. There is someone coming from the woman who will crush Satan's power and in doing so, his heel will be wounded. And my friend, that is Jesus Christ who came as the second Adam the Son of Mary, the Son of God. And on the cross, he crushed Satan and the power of sin, even though he was wounded himself. But three days later, God brought hope eternal alive, right? And raising up his son from the dead. Friend, Can there be a resurrected marriage? Is there a resurrected Jesus? God specializes in giving life and hope and resurrection to ruined marriages. Isn't it beautiful? God's answer to mankind's needs, a redeemer, is God's answer to marriage needs. We need the gospel. We need the redeemer in our marriage. <laughs> He's our hope. How wonderful that God first speaks the hope of the gospel into a hopeless, ruined marriage. That's the first time God speaks the gospel to a man and woman whose marriage has been ruined by selfishness. He says there's hope in the gospel. Such hope in the gospel, a gospel that's so powerful that you know what? God makes in the Bible... The great allegory of, the, of, of eternal redemption, the allegory of marriage, the son and the bride. It's a gospel image. And that's what I want us to see now. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We read that passage earlier. Ephesians chapter 5. And I want you to see... The gospel image through marriage. There's the gospel on display. What are we talking about this month? The gospel on display. Faith and the family. And in marriage, the gospel has its very image displayed. What do we read in Ephesians chapter 5? You, are, you read of Christ who is the bridegroom. And you read of the church, his people, the bride, right? This is a revelation of the gospel. How do we know that? Look at verses 32 and 33. He's talking to husbands and wives about their responsibility. But he says, notice what you're displaying. 
Verse 32, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see what he's saying? I'm talking to you about a spirit-controlled marriage. I'm talking to you about what God can give you as two sinners through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And I am telling you that it is so powerful that even as I talk about the husband-wife relationship, it is an allegory. It is a picture of the gospel. Wow. Wow. Now notice Paul's talking to husbands and wives. This is gospel talk. You think gospel talk's only telling somebody how to find, know Jesus, then you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is not something that is needed just by the unsaved. We need the gospel every day as the same, Amen. right? Amen. What's the gospel? Well, let's look at this. Consider the gospel instructions for marriage. Here they are, gospel instructions. Are you a Christian? Yes. Are you married? Say, yes, I hope to be. These are gospel instructions. Now, thank God there's just two. That's good, isn't it? Primarily two to the husband and the wife. But they are so powerful, so crucial to a covenant marriage. Remember, marriage is a covenant. Two people brought together, united by God in marriage. It's covenant. What are the covenant instructions for the woman, the bride, and for the husband, the groom? Number one, loving submission. Number two, loving sacrifice. Now, both of these don't flow out of the wife and her ability or out of the husband and his ability. The ability for loving submission and loving sacrifice flows from the Holy Spirit. Amen. How do I know that? Because verse 17, before Paul ever talks about the instructions for the wife and the husband, he goes back to the power source. And he says this, verse 17, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Amen. And what is that will? Look at verses 18 and 19. Do not get drunk with wine. Or literally, stop getting drunk with wine. For that is debauchery. But be being filled, literally... With the Spirit. Notice that. What's the will of God? That you be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Is it an emotion? Is it is something that you've never sensed before? How, how do you know that you're filled with the Spirit? It means to be controlled by the Spirit. The same word here for filled with the Spirit is a word that a sail is filled with the wind so that the ship is moved. Have the Holy Spirit working in your life so that it's controlling your life, empowering your life. And what's going to happen when you're filled with the Spirit? Do not watch television and say, well, is that what's going to happen? Here's what's going to happen when people are filled with the Spirit. I'm reading the Bible to you, okay? Verse 18, verse 19. 
you will be addressing one another. See the community? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms, the psalms of David, singing those hymns, songs of praise directed to God. Spiritual songs are songs of the Spirit, songs of testimony. You're singing and you're making melody to the Lord with all your heart. (laughs) Thank God it doesn't have to say with your voice. (laughs) You you can make a joyful noise to the Lord. (laughs) It's a new song. What is it? Praise to God. See it, verse 20? How do you know someone's filled with the Spirit? Giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they are submitting themselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. How do you know when people are filled with the Holy Spirit? They're filled with the Holy Spirit where there's mutual worship. And there's praise to God where Jesus is lifted up, not man. Where the Lord is exalted and people are thankful. They're not grumbly hateful. They're humbly grateful. They're grateful for the grace of God. And they're submitting themselves one to another. They're looking for opportunities to help others, to assist others. Not focused on themselves, focused on others. That's the Holy Spirit work. Because the flesh will never do that. So, how's that Holy Spirit flow into marriages? Well, it flows in this way. And Paul says, here's the instructions. He gives gospel instructions for marriage. Notice we see something about these instructions. Listen carefully. Marriage is planned by the Father. It is powered by the Spirit. And it is given the pattern of the Son. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in marriage. You have the Father's plan. Who planned it all? Genesis 2, God. Where does the power come from? Me? No, the Holy Spirit. Well, who do I model myself after? Uh, Where do I look for a model? You look to Jesus the Son. He's the pattern. He's the pattern for the wife, and he's the pattern for the husband. Now, notice this. What's the pattern for the wife? It's this. Loving submission, the wife's example in Christ. Loving submission. It's love. Loving submission, the wife's example in Christ. Look at verse 21 and following. Chapter 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're to do that to each other. Submission, mutual submission. And in particular in the marriage, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Don't treat him as if he's God. He's not. Oh, Dagwood's not. But deal with him as to the Lord, as your responsibility to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Doesn't say men are head over women. Put that out of your mind, guys. That male chauvinism. Some dear lady, some man, not your husband, starts bossing you around and dominating you. Let him have it in Christian love. And I'll leave that up to you to decide. (laughs) The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, 
And what is his role? To save. To bless. Now this is perhaps the most misunderstood and misused passage in the Bible. I think it very well may be the most misunderstood and misused passage in the Bible. We come to this word submission and Matter of fact, I have a sermon from years ago on this passage. I called it the terrible S word. Submission. It's not a word. Listen, this word has nothing to do with inequality or insensitivity. The word submission means literally to stand under. To stand under. It's actually a military term. And the idea is to assume the role or assume the rank that has been assigned you by the commander. Listen, husbands and wives have been assigned responsibilities by the heavenly father who is commander in chief, right? But husbands and wives, listen, have the same equality. There's no inequality between husband and wife. They have the same responsibility. The same responsibility is to honor the Lord and to do his will. So what is the definition for submission? Here is my humble but very accurate definition for submission. It's this. Listen carefully. Submission is one equal placing herself. This is in the marriage context. One equal placing herself under another equal in honor of the Lord. That is what submission is. It is one equal <laughs> placing herself under another equal. Not because he deserves it. But in honor to the Lord. <laughs> I, want, I love what, what one very witty sister in Christ said about this. About submission. She said it means this. Duck and let God hit your husband. <laughs> That's what it means. Now. Listen carefully, and I especially want every wife, every young person, especially young women, to listen to what I'm about to say. How do we know that submission is not degrading? How do we know that? When we're told constantly it is. How do we know it isn't? The answer is is because Jesus did it. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11.3 God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Equal. But God the Son, in order to fulfill the role of Redeemer, put himself under God the Father to accomplish eternal salvation. Amen. Well, you say, well, that helped a little, Sam. My husband isn't a whole lot like God the Father. Okay. It's used another time of Jesus. You remember when Jesus, at the age of 12, was in the temple? And they looked for him. Mom had looked for him, couldn't find him. He's 12 years old. Son... Why have you treated us this way? How is it that you looked for me? Didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Didn't you know I'd be here in my father's house? And then it says this. He went back to Nazareth and he was in subjection to them. At the age of 12, before he became a teenager, Jesus knew he was the Son of God. 
But he went home and put himself under a mom and dad who were not perfect. Only he's perfect. I would say if Jesus wasn't not degraded to put himself under his mom and dad, no one is degraded to do what the Lord says to do. No wife is degraded. To recognize the role her husband has. Therefore, submission for the wife is, listen carefully, submission is not actually to the husband. Listen carefully. Submission is through the husband to God. You see? It's not submission actually to your husband. He deserves it. He demands it. No, I stand under that role he has, and I do this through him, but it's to him, the Lord. That's the loving submission, the wife's example in Christ. Now, quickly, let's look at the husband's example. What is it? Loving sacrifice. The husband's example in Christ. Remember, whose example? Christ. The loving example in Christ. Verse 25. Look at it, please. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself for her. That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. So that he might present her. The church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle. Or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way. Husbands should love their wives. As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Wow. Men, we think we're Mr. Big Shot. Large and in charge. Read this. You do not ascend into greatness after the wedding. No, you descend into greatness. Just like Jesus who said, let me show you greatness. And he picked up what? The basin and the towel. And he washed the feet of his church. His disciples. That's leadership. You say that doesn't sound like the books on leadership I've read. Trash them. Who do you think knows more about leadership? Madison Avenue? The internet? Or Jesus Christ? I have had it up to here. With people who talk about leadership and they don't know a thing about it. And they fill their minds with all this baloney about taking control and leading with authority. Christian, pick up your Bible. Husband, pick up your Bible. You don't come into your house with an attitude of, Hail to the chief. Dun, 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 dun. You know, that's what you want? No. Come home thinking how you can be a blessing to your wife. Help your wife. Encourage your children so that they know in the years to come that your hand is something more than an instrument of discipline. They are used to your hands being the touch of mercy and encouragement.
What does love sacrifice? Love sacrifices self for the sake of the one loved. What did Jesus do? He gave what? Himself. Love is giving yourself. That's the essence of love. Husbands, love is giving yourself. Not stuff. Your wife didn't marry stuff. She didn't marry a house. She didn't marry a car. She didn't marry a 401k. She married you. And nothing you can ever give can take the place of you. And when you hold back yourself from your wife, you are neglecting your wife and you are guilty of emotional abuse because your wife has a right to you, your attention, your affection, your understanding, your desire to help her, to make her better. Why? Because of Jesus. That's what she has a right. Husbands that neglect their wives are carrying out emotional abuse. Protect her. Protect your wife by not neglecting her. Paul said, care for her the way you care for yourself. Wow. I've thought many times, if this man would care for his wife the way he cares for his car. If he'd care for his wife the way he cares for his golf game. If he'd care for his wife for the way he cares for his career. Neglect, 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 neglect. And the dear woman's heart finally is parched like a desert. Your wife, listen, is your other self. The two shall become what? One flesh. Gospel-guided marriage. One flesh bound. What, bound. what binds the man and woman together? Listen carefully. Love and respect. Love and respect. Verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love is giving yourself. Submission is spelled R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Love. And respect. I close with this gospel invitation. How do we walk out a gospel marriage? Well, here's how you do it. Number one, you walk with Jesus. Say, I can't walk with him. Well, stop walking with him. Walk with Jesus for a while. You say, I, boy, that sounds nice and preachy. Am I preaching? Let's read it. <laughs> Bible sure does help out a lot of bad preaching. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The gospel on display. Walk down the aisle remembering we're walking with Jesus. We're walking with Jesus. You say, well, what if one of us is not walking with Jesus? That happens. But what are you going to do? Stand there for the rest of your life and say, well, when you start walking, I'll start walking. Are you going to stand there and say, you take a step, I'll take a step. Let me tell you about heavenly geometry. I've used this many times. 
you haven't heard a word I've said, just watch this. Here is a man and his wife. This is how far apart we are. Ben, you getting this? (laughs) (laughs) Remember who we are. (laughs) What do you do? We're not even close to each other. But see my Bible there? On the podium? What if that represents the Lord? I don't walk toward Susan. She's not walking toward me. But because of the gospel, I start walking toward Jesus. I start walking toward Jesus. Susan starts walking toward Jesus. What is happening to two lines converging on the same point? They are getting closer together. That's what geometry teaches. But I want to tell you, that's what the gospel teaches. Two sinners walking toward Jesus are going to get close together. But, say he's not walking toward Jesus. The rascal is not walking toward Jesus. He won't do it. He will not walk toward Jesus. But what? If I'm not walking toward Jesus, but Susan says I'm going to walk toward Jesus. I'm going to walk toward Jesus. She doesn't have a crystal ball and know how this is going to work out. But guess what? Here is Jesus' invitation in Matthew. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Even if he doesn't walk toward Jesus, even if she doesn't walk toward Jesus, you can make the gospel-empowered decision to walk toward Jesus. And whatever comes, Jesus is sufficient. We need him. Don't we need him? Let's stand to our feet. Would you say in your heart, Lord, I need the gospel. I need Jesus in my life. I need your power for this. I wonder if there might be families. Maybe couples who would covenant say, We need to walk toward Jesus. Or maybe there would be a husband or a wife who would say, regardless of what he does, she does, I'm going to walk toward Jesus. That's my invitation. And I think it'd be a wonderful thing maybe if some people just wanted to come and pray about that this morning. That's our invitation. If you'd like to come for prayer, we're singing this. We do need him. Doug, lead us.